Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are, well, we are in March, so we're going to keep up with the theme of Irish and Irish-related things that we have done throughout this month, and I am thrilled to welcome on both Patrick and Megan Miller of Talnua Distillery. Patrick, Megan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Thank you. Yeah, we're so excited to be here to chat with you. So I should say I got to try uh, six of their products, actually, uh, the five from the core range, as well as this year's Old Saints Keep release, which will... I'm going to crack. I haven't tried that yet. I'm, I'm going to crack that while we're on air so we can do a little taste of that. That will be available uh, as of St. Patrick's Day, right? As of anniversary. Correct. Yeah, it'll be released actually on St. Patrick's Day this year on, on 17th. So next Friday or, or the Friday uh, of the 17th. <laughs> right. It's the easiest. Right, so this. The day. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So this should be coming out on uh, March 15th. So it'll be two days before. So make sure to mark your calendar on the 17th to grab a bottle. And with that, let's jump right in. So let's see the Talnua origin story. Yeah, I, I, uh, um, I love this story um, because it's now um, becoming, I think, more and more relevant as more people uh, experience some of these Irish pot still whiskeys that have come out over the last um really uh 15 years now um and, and when we uh first started dating even whiskey there was always just something so fun there to explore we had always been big irish and scottish whiskey drinkers predominantly um i think always had a heart for barley based distillates and blends and uh it was it was fun you know to quiz each other on what what type of whiskey we were serving and blind tastings to one another and and just kind of experiencing what was what was out there uh and uh, especially in a time before like podcasts and things like you are wonderfully providing to the people now uh where there's interaction with brands like you kind of had to do your own self exploration without a whole lot of help right and so um it was in 2011 um it was actually the the 10th anniversary of 9-11 so it was September 11th 2011 um Megan and I were on our honeymoon and we honeymooned in Ireland and um there it was the day of the USA versus Ireland rugby game uh, now the game was on in New Zealand, uh, but it was on in Ireland at like eight or 9 AM in the morning. And we got to the pub super early. We we're the only ones with USA gear on. We were in Galway. And uh, at the end of the match, uh, unfortunately, um, Team USA did not beat the Irish that day. Um, but the Irish were very friendly, of course, knowing that it was a kind of a monu- um, uh, momentous anniversary. And in walked the Middleton representative dropping off cases for the weekend. And it was Red Breast Cast Strength. And that was the first time it had re-entered the market um, in decades. 
and the uh, friendly bartender ripped open a case and excitedly shared it with us. Like this is a very important piece of whiskey history. Um, there's, you know, nothing more Irish than this style made out of malted and unmalted barley. He told us a bit of the history and poured it in for anybody that knows uh, and, and has had an experience with red breast. It really is a special whiskey. And, and it was the first whiskey that we really fell in love with together. Of course, being, uh, uh, and, on our honeymoon, it being just such a romantic tale to begin with, getting to kind of share this and be some of the first people, um, especially non-Irish people, to have this uh, sip as it was coming out uh, for their release weekend. It was really a, a kind of a huge uh, experience for us that going back to Ireland every year, year after year, uh, new expressions were coming out green spot you would then get the powers releases um middleton berry crockett legacy of course all of those all come from the middleton distillery where jameson is made and then you started getting the tealings and the glendalocks and uh, other craft irish distilleries who started uh really in 2014 and later uh crafting these styles of whiskey uh we would just come home with cases full of of this stuff and so it really became a love affair uh and you know it always left us wanting because we could only bring so much back of course we would drink it all or share it all and then it was a year until we would get the next kind of our fix of of the next batches that would come back in suitcases and so it was wild to me that such a storied whiskey, such an iconic brand, um, what happened to it? Where did it go? And why is nobody in the United States making this style, right? Now we're having this conversation, I think, that's much more relevant about American single malt as it's becoming codified um, this year under the Tax and Trade Bureau as American single malt, a protected style of, of whiskey, um that knock on wood if you knock on wood, it. right i yeah. said it, i said it this year and I, <laughs> I i i'm i'm hopeful i'm very hopeful um but that was really the the origin story pre us starting the distillery was falling in love with this style and kind of realizing like hey nobody's doing this and we're out in barley country right one of the interesting things i think is that pot still whiskey made out of malted and unmalted barley with other mixed mash in there, oats and, and wheat in particular, would have been being made by Irish American distillers uh, if barley grew east of the Mississippi. But really pre um, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, no barley was being grown east of the Mississippi, right? You get a lot of rye coming from Maryland and Empire Rye from New York and Monongahela from Pennsylvania. Uh, and then, of course, it's then corn country from the Virginias uh, to Missouri uh, and the Mississippi River. Uh, it's just corn growing country there. Um, and wheat and barley kind of are Western state grains, right? I mean, Kansas, Nebraska, that's where you're getting a lot of the wheat from. And then out here in the Rockies, where barley grows, and, and really, it's predominantly uh, from the Coors family that brought uh, barley over to make barley based beers from the foothills of the Alps to the foothills of the Rockies, um, and kind of created a natural resource base 
that separated what became the American bourbon tradition made uh, by a lot of Scotch uh, and Irish American uh, early settlers using their natural resources. The joke at the distillery is, of course, like it's local is cool now. It was the only option in the early 1800s. And so that that really codified, solidified what the American whiskey landscape was going to look like by the population growth on the eastern seaboard and, and movement to the Mississippi River. And then it whiskey just wasn't made in nearly the quantities out here uh, in, in the Rockies, right? It became beers and ales. And, um, and so it's really cool to kind of be now part of this American whiskey landscape uh, and be able to be the first distillery fully dedicated to making this style of whiskey and only single pot still whiskey here. So uh, and I can get into to more of how, how we built the distillery, uh, if that answered that question all, all the way for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, you touched on probably about eight or nine different things that we're going to get to uh, during the interview, which is good. Uh, one thing that did come up that I wanted to ask, though, um, so I assume you guys are rugby fans. Mm -hmm. okay so i've seen maybe three matches in my life I, I don't know much about the sport but one of the things that i've always wanted to ask someone about is so i have two people i know who play mm -hmm. um, my cousin who is female and a friend of ours who is male mm -hmm. why is it that the male rugby players look like defensive tackles and the female rugby players are like athletic sticks What's the difference in the in the sport between them? You know, I don't know that I've got a great answer for I that. I mean, position, isn't it? It's you know, based on position of how sturdy you need to be. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 I think you know, you probably hit on that too. I think um, especially female rugby had a much later start than like most sports than than their male counterparts uh, as far as the timeline of rugby being a very old game and really it being um, probably the 90s before there were any major clubs and um, uh, started to have a World Cup uh, basis surrounding that as well and and so um, you know as rugby, progressed if you look at rugby players from the 60s and 70s um those rugby players are not anywhere as statuesque as today's rugby players are right i think as the game progressed at least on the male side um like the nfl people just got bigger right i mean it it, it became a better part of the game strategy for you to have larger people even more fit, more muscular people that could handle the tackles and the time frame of 80 minutes of nonstop play. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think especially through the development of female rugby players, uh, sevens, which is a different style of rugby came out with different kind of physical demands, speed, agility are much more the name of the game than brute strength uh, mm -hmm. is. And so I think there's probably a lot of answers there. And I'd love to hear anybody else who's got a good answer to that. Um, uh, Cause I just made that up. It's <laughs> <laughs> a working theory. It's a working it's theory. A, it's, it's good with me. It's good with me. So in, into the distillery, into the whiskey. 
Yep. So uh, I want to start a little bit with uh, just, yeah, the fact that nobody else was really doing this mm-hmm. at the time. So uh, Megan, in an interview for, for Westward, uh, maybe a year, year and a half ago, you were mentioning that, you know, in 2012, there was no distillery making the style in the US. By 2014, a, a couple were trying, but none in Colorado. And then by 2021, which I think was the date of the article, only a few distilleries still were. So, and and this is not, um, this is trying to make a single pot still whiskey in the Irish style and just part of it, let alone be a dedicated distillery to it. Uh, just to kind of set the scene, you know, who who is still trying to make it in in the U.S. besides Tanua? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll find a, a a handful of people trying to make pots or making pots still what they're calling pasta whiskey. Um, I think one of the important things for us is that we follow the Irish technical whiskey technical file, mm-hmm. um, and we do that in order to set the standard in. Uh, sort of on the coattails of the American single malt movement that we want to set the quality, set the standard and make sure that, you know, everyone, not only the Irish know that we are making an American single pot still whiskey and we're not trying to be Irish. Uh, we want to be distinctly American, but, um, you know, so we, the, the three rules that we're able to follow here are, uh, well, the current rules right now in the Irish whiskey technical file that we can follow are, uh, at least 30% malted barley, at least 30% raw unmalted barley, and then up to 5% of other oats or grains. Um, and then a, a grain off fermentation and distillation distilled in a unobstructed copper pot still. So we have all three of those items um, on that list. Really the only thing that we can't follow is you know being aged in Ireland and using Irish water. And we're not going to transport Irish water here that would just be <laughs> we, have, we have we have great water here yeah, exactly. a, yeah. um so we use uh Eldorado Springs water to cut down our whiskey uh, and we think that that adds to our terroir here and we use all uh Rocky Mountain barley right now we're using all Colorado barley um and so we really think that that uh, bodes well for setting up a standard for what American single pot still should be moving forward for anybody else who wants to make it with us um, and we encourage that. And, and I think there's really a couple good uh, folks doing stuff most of the time. And, you know, uh, this kind of goes back to I'm not sure why other folks aren't doing it right now. At some level, we hit a stride right mm-hmm. along the Irish whiskey distillers and we're on that cadence. Right. And so we just hit a very special time in history where our life changes allowed us to capitalize on moving forward with being bold enough or stupid or naive (laughs) enough to to start a a a distillery but you have uh some folks out there who have to great success made some wonderful expressions um like iron root um did a saint patrick's day i think two years in a row that were um pot stills um there's a group in um uh minneapolis called o'shaughnessy's that's laying down some of this style that they famously brought over the master distiller from jameson um there is ransom distillery that made uh yeah. a pot still 
type or style, especially would have been a really old recipe that had oats and wheat in it as well, higher than the whiskey technical file would currently allow. Uh, but that's also changing. We can talk about that too. The, the Irish whiskey technical file is undergoing a change um, that will allow for some of these historic mash bills that have been uncovered during this renaissance of Irish whiskey um, that would have been clearly codified under the pot still style of whiskey that are currently not allowed to be made because of some of the limitations of the Irish whiskey technical file. And these, these are, they're being updated predominantly because of a lot of the research that Kanan has done. Um, so you'll have to He'll have to give us a part two of a glass apart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's really going well, through yeah. his PhD currently, and I think we're all excitedly waiting because he's worked with so many craft Irish distillers uh, and is kind of bringing this history to light. Um, because I think, you know, and, the, and some of the history that we grew to love this style upon was really more marketing-based history than mm -hmm. actual history, not in a negative way, not a mistruths type of way, but a more limited view than really the the broad definition, because we're talking about a style of whiskey um, that that went almost completely disappeared, right? During a paper economy time where there's really not a whole lot of record when a big business goes out of business, all the journals and everything just kind of got disposed of. And so evidence is lurking in people's homes because it's great grandfather's journals and things like that it's hardly archival in the way that you would want to really be able to uncover every truth about this style of of whiskey so we we just hit a really special time and and to be quite honest it's a very difficult style of whiskey to make raw unmalted barley can be a lion to fight against um but i believe like most things that are very difficult um when conquered are ever more sweet than than the easy route um uh, which in whiskey i don't believe there is an easy route right i mean just the time alone keeps ease from ever being a part of the conversation um, but really describing or, or or dedicating to this style was a gamble for sure and there wasn't a lot out there to try that wasn't coming from Ireland and so we didn't have a lot of American compatriots to kind of lean on like hey how did you do this right I, I mean there are tens of thousands of bourbon labels out in the United States and and only a couple dozen ever that say pot still, single pot still whiskey on them in the United States. So, so we sought to be the vanguard of this style. And for better or worse, right, we had no idea. And this is part of that naivete, no idea if people were going to be excited about it, think it was as interesting as we did, fall in love with it like we did. There was just no answer to any of that uh, at the time when we started here. So um, I think I think this is a good time or a good question to um, address this too, because people come to us all the time and they're like, well, no, I mean, I know somebody who makes pot still whiskey. And like, for example, Willet has a pot still whiskey. And and in that case, they're referring to the piece of equipment rather than the mash bill. So most whiskeys or all whiskeys are 
uh, categorized by their mash bill. So that's what we're referring to as our mash bill. Mm-hmm. And and coincidentally, the the piece of equipment that we also use. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's quite quite honestly a terrible name <laughs> for a style um, because it so many other styles use the apparatus that this style of whiskey is named after, right? But at the time, early on, pot still style of whiskey and what really when it became known as pot still style of whiskey. And this is like whiskey history stuff, right? We have to remember that today our mindset almost always as consumers is confidence and consistency, brands that have product lines that go out into multiple uh, states or countries that have trustworthy labels that are always um, the same mash bill, the same distillation type, the same whatever. Um, We're talking about the 1700s here where there was no tax and trade bureau telling you what you can do and approving every single label that goes in and, and, and codifying the mash bills and what styles uh, uh, were allowed or were, were not allowed and what you were allowed to say and what you weren't allowed to say. Um, there's There was a huge agrarian economy where seasonality was much more relevant than it is today. I could get barley all year round. We can get strawberries and oranges at the grocery store all year round. That's very new in human history. And so are a lot of these regulatory environments and so are a lot of the availability and markets so we have to kind of take our modern lens and refocus it entirely when we're describing the history of this style right where multiple mash bills were used and sometimes that had oats in it because that was what was sown in that season and sometimes it was wheat and the proportions of mash bills constantly changed and uh, whether or not it was annually ever even a mash bill or just purely what was available at the time, that's all a new conversation. And, and, and it's what people really want to know now. And it was never part of the, the ancient voice of, of whiskey. Um, so much so that pot still whiskey was only called pot still whiskey when the column still was invented, because that was the only other time when un everything was made in a pot still, right? Right. So that was the only option. That was the only piece of technology. And the Irish distillers in a move to really say, no, it has to be distilled in a pot still. It has to have this grain makeup, at least at minimums, didn't even come about until the column still started being used in the industrial area era, excuse me, right? I mean, 1831, I believe, is when the still was patented and really took over over the next 50 years, right? And so Mm -hmm. you're talking 1880s before this was ever even a problem that needed a name for it, right? And the Irish distillers wanted to create that identity based on this piece of equipment because they believed it was so important to the construction of the end product of this whiskey. So I, we always, this is a huge education hurdle and Megan fields those questions a lot, especially um, being in the tasting room side and, and with, with public engagements is there's a high level of education that you're exactly right. Balcones makes an amazing pot still. Will it makes an amazing pot still. What they're telling you is that their bourbon 
is made on a pot still, not that it's made out of malted and unmalted barley, right? So it's, and, and it's fine. That's something we've learned to live with. And, and honestly, a lot of the folks that put pot still on their bottles make really good whiskey. So we're not in bad company uh, when we're having to make these descriptions. Sure. And I don't know how I didn't remember the, <clears throat> I said before that my, before we start recording, my voice might go out and, uh, just did for a second. I'm surprised that I didn't remember Iron Root. I, I had no idea about, but um, Ransom I tried quite randomly. Actually, I was I was at a bar and they had almost nothing that I hadn't tried before, and I was like, "Oh, that's one bottle. Let me try that." Mm-hmm. And then, as far as the O'Shaughnessys go, um, I had David Perkins on. He was a guest uh, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, and actually, as of recording, at least I should be getting um, some of that single malt the 10 year old single malt that they have uh, very shortly. So I will cool up to date on that. Yeah, please do. And and you're yeah. exactly right. And they're laying that down. I don't, I don't even think, th- I think their first two year old stuff doesn't come out until late this right. year, or next year. I was uh, going to say, yeah, something like that. Cause they, they got, as I said, they got Brian nation mm-hmm. uh, late last year or mid last year, I guess. Um, which might've been the steal of the year. It's kind of like sending Babe Ruth to the Red Sox, but <laughs> and, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Mets fan, so that's fine with me. But yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we're Rockies fans, so we're, we're there's not a whole I mean, lot of love here since since about 07, I think. <laughs> I mean, as long as as long as Arenado stays in the field, you might have a better we chance. We got a fighting but, chance. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, you kind of went over the, uh, the one of the questions I was going to ask, which was about you know the, given the influx of Irish immigration um, to the Americas as far back as the 1600s, but especially the 1800s and the 19th century, um, you know, was it surprising to not find more single pot still as we would define it today? But I, I you know, I think you kind of covered it. And I would also encourage people to listen to uh, Patrick, your episode with Drew from Whiskey Lore from last year. Oh, yeah. Where he really went through Drew that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Drew does a, you know, a great interview. He's becoming a friend of mine. And um, I definitely listen. I think I listened to that one twice because I wanted to make sure I had all the info from it. Uh, and so that was one of the ones I wanted to refer to. Another one was that on the uh, on the Bourbon Road, as as you said, you mentioned that basically you're covering everything in the Irish technical file except for the fact, except for the made in Ireland using yeah. Irish water. Yeah. Um, being a a distillery that is dedicated to single pot still distillation mm-hmm. and uh, again, otherwise conforming to the Irish technical files is, uh, I think, inarguably, it's it's inherently limiting in a certain way. But to flip that, it also allows you experimentation within that. So, you know, you've given a couple of examples of, of how you've done that, but how do, have you, where have you felt that you could uh, push the boundary most within the current regulations and still say that we're following the Irish technical files? Sure. Um, I think, you know, we, our goal is to kind of uh, exemplify how diverse this product line can be, or this category can be. And so, you know, you just said yourself, you've tried five of our expressions and um, we can talk about what those each are, but I think being in America allows us a lot of flexibility in you know, finishing and, um, and age as well. We started with quarter casks, um, at two years old 
So I, I just think there's a lot of flexibility in America, but also trying to stand by the standards that were set before us is really important. So I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, I actually have several answers to this and I will be as concise as possible here. Good luck. Uh, yeah, <laughs> one, one of them being... Um, I mentioned that the MASH bill is going to change those regulations. Um, we're moving into a 30-30-30 MASH bill. Um, that 30-30-30 MASH bill is a minimum of 30% malted barley, a minimum of 30% raw barley, but up to 30% other grains. Um, now that's oats, wheat, and rye uh, legally in, in Ireland. And that is being worked and going through the EU process Um because I mentioned earlier that a lot of these old mash bills don't fit the current um, GI, which is the geographical indicator that they is the mechanism by which they're only allowed to have 5% other grains. And now it's obvious that as the history has been uncovered, and one of the things to have a geographical indicator like champagne is there really has to be a historic precedence for that. And now that this new history or old history, I suppose, as it is, is coming to light, um, they're changing that mash bill, right? So um, way more diverse of a mash bill uh, option than, say, our single malt brothers and sisters. Um, I'm about ready to be able to put 30% of sweet or rye. Um, really, the changing of the mash bills, we'll talk about this when we actually taste some of the whiskey here in a minute, is how broad and spicy that mouthfeel is just coming from the raw barley and how you change the proportions of that. Um, the second biggest thing is unlike bourbon in the United States um, that has to be all in a charred new American white oak barrel. The barrel can only be used one time um, in Ireland under the technical file. It's a wood barrel. It's not even an oak barrel. So it could be chestnut. Uh, you get Method and Madness, who's been really uh, good. And Teeling, both of them, Teeling's Wonders of Wood, is exploring the broad uh, breadth and depth of, of the forests of the world and what it does to the spirit, what it does to the distillate. So we're about ready to have a really big uh, opportunity for mixed mash bill styles um that are all the rage in in uh america just inherently everything's <laughs> mixed mash bill by uh the 51 percent rule right mm -hmm. um and for everybody out there the 51 percent rule uh if it's 51 percent malt it's called uh american malt whiskey uh bourbon has to be at least 51 percent corn but the other 49 percent can be any other types of, of grains. And so um, the mixed mash bill nature that we're allowed to have, the types of wood that don't have to be limited to oak uh, and the cut process, especially in a triple distillation is I can make a heavy pot still that's very oily by only double distilling it, right? Mm -hmm. I can then change the cut points on all three stills to recycle what's called feints recycling, where you basically make cuts on every still run and recycle portions of that still run into the next batch and rectify that in a certain way. If you add distillate from uh, feints from the spirit still back to the wash still, that'll get redistilled in three times. 
So I can make a very light pot still, a very delicate, fruity, aromatic pot still, or a very dense, heavy, oily, earthy pot still, all with the same mash bill, just by altering the cut profile. So we are, I wouldn't, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. It's literally just, we have five whiskeys in front of you and it's, and it's six, six, that's right. And we barely even started with the experimental line so much so because again people in the modern era which i completely respect i'm one of these people want consistent product lines and when we say hey we would love for you to try our virgin american white oak we don't want folks in ohio not to be able to have it in a few years but people you know in florida be able to have right it's like let's try to build brand lines that have consistency so there's a conversation along the growth of those brand lines but we are creating uh, uh, a product line called our Aries that will come out this year. Aries, uh, of course, the Ram is the uh, symbol of Aries. And uh, we're kind of making that our alchemic uh, experimental line that unlike Old Saints Keep that we really want it to be the best of what the distillery is offering. Um, the Aries is meant to be experimental. Maybe it works great. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it becomes a product line someday. Maybe it'll never see the light of day again. Um, but that'll kind of be that outlet that kind of archives all of these different experiments of yeast profiles, wood profiles that are on the fringe of, of the forestry that's used for cooperage, um, uh, different mash bills, different distillation types, things that people can really see, like Megan said, how broad and expansive a single category and style can be, but still how identifiable it is. It, it's, it's like bourbon, the rules keep a DNA in in kind of entrenched in the nature of the style of whiskey. And uh, but just because it shares a common lineage doesn't mean that there isn't uh, plenty of intrigue to to kind of uncover along the way. And I should say we're um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on the on the whiskey. The whiskeys themselves on this one, only because um you know, I want to really get um, deeper into some other questions as well that are going to expand upon that whiskey thing. And also when this episode comes out, uh, I'm going to have tasting notes and, and information in my usual style, loquacious as always, uh, of um, <clears throat> for all five of the expressions, plus the six, the old saints keep um, that you generously uh, provide me with. So, but just to run through them quickly, um, the, Besides the Old Saints Keep, which is the special release mentioned earlier in the episode, we got the Heritage Cask, uh, which is the uh, mix of your distillate plus uh, grain whiskey from Ireland to match that Heritage style. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there'll be more information on this in, in the write-ups, I promise. Uh, check the show notes for, for links to those. Uh, so the Heritage, the Continuum, using mm-hmm. a Solera method which definitely unusual and I think at least unusual in Irish whiskey, Uh, the peated cask, and this is in no particular order, the peated cask, which um, is, I am going to go into a little more on that one a little bit later. Uh, The, as the American virgin white Oak Mm -hmm. and the cask and the stave series Mm -hmm. with the bourbon in there. Mm -hmm. And each of these really had its own, 
uh, story to tell, which for me is always the most fascinating thing. You know, why is someone doing it? Because there's a story and there's a reason for it. And each of these clearly had that reason. It was very yeah. apparent. Um, I also, I just want to throw this out. I know not everyone gets to experience the um, sample experience that I had, but uh, just by nature of how it works, but um, getting the samples, but also the booklet, the little booklet of not only information about each expression, but also how it could be used, the profile that you got as a sensory panel and then comparing it to my notes was very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, Thanks. And yeah, I just want to throw that in there because not everyone does that. Sometimes I get samples with like no context and then I'll get stuff with a ton of information, but not the information I need. And um, no, yours was very, it was succinct. It was there and it was very, very helpful in just going through them and learning about them. Uh, as is the website. It's there's a lot of information there. We'll include more, uh, of course, in the tasting notes. But so I do want to say though, I I hope I'm glad that the experimental line will be something a little different. And this is me speaking as a consumer, because I happen to really love the house profile that you have right now with um, you know heavy on the kind of green apple, Granny Smith apple minus the overt tartness mm -hmm. to it, bright acidity without the mouth buckering tartness, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I fully understand. I mean, that's, I'm one person, but I, I do really enjoy that. So I hope uh, that you'll keep the 50-50 mash bill at least for part of things going on. Mm -hmm. um, and Absolutely. I have to say too, I think of the five, while I genuinely did enjoy each of the five, the American white oak one was probably to me the most... Um, that and the peated, those two were the most intriguing storylines mm -hmm. just because the first with the American white oak, obviously being this Irish style, single pot still so identifiable with Ireland um, aged in the American style that's required now. And, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's an incredible mix of flavor that I think probably highlighted your spirit and by that, I, I do mean the dissolute, but the, you know, it could be a spirit elsewhere too. Um, highlighted it the best of anything just because it had the extra creaminess that you get with pot still and, and a little bit of the spice from the quiet calls and the eugenols and the, in the oak. And so I, I really did enjoy that, but it, I did enjoy all five genuinely. And um, yeah, so there'll be links to all of them in the show notes. Perfect. Okay. And, and people do ask, you know, ooh, do you have a favorite one? You know, oh, it must be like your children. You can't have one that you love more. And I'm like, I definitely do. And it's Virgin American White Oak. Now, that being said, I, I'm really hoping and I would love to hear your thought is that when we started this, kind of going back to what we were just talking about with, you know, do we feel pigeonholed? because of limitations of the Irish whiskey technical file and the manufacturing requirements, or do we feel liberated by that? I think, you know, we kind of express that there's a lot of liberation we have even yet to discover. Um, um, but I really wanted to not give you five of the same thing. Uh, I wanted to make sure that there was seasonality and, um, oak profile aging differences and grain forward expressions and oak forward expressions and um, uh, blends, right? I mean, really looking at what we can do because I have learned that though I do have a favorite among the lineup, 
as Virgin American White Oak. Um, there are days, especially in the spring, summer, where bourbon cask and stave, that grain forward floral nature that mm -hmm. comes from the barley getting to sing more than the oak getting to sing uh, is just the absolute best. And I make, I'm drinking an old fashioned right now as we're sitting and talking, this is continuum. And I almost only drink my old fashions with our continuum. Um, easiest cocktail in, in the world, but uh, an Irish whiskey favorite that Jameson brought forth is uh, Heritage Selection or Jameson Ginger Ale, Heritage Selection, Ginger Ale, Squeeze a Lime. Just a, an absolute winner there. The peated cask. I mean, talk about your fall uh, winter flavor profile, that nice, meaty, smoky nature to, mm -hmm. to that whiskey. I think that there's something for everybody, even at this young age here where the flavor profiles have, have really changed. And I think there's seasonality. It's the old Guinness on the beach. Um, that's not where most people want to enjoy. That's Corona territory, right? Mm -hmm. But in a, in a pub, uh, with, a band playing and among friends, uh, a Guinness is really hard to beat, right? But just not meant for every day of the year in every situation. And and sure. we wanted to do that with the uh, with our lineup. Although we did just get back from Mexico, and Patrick was drinking Dewars in the pool. I did drink <laughs> Dewars in Cabo in the pool. <laughs> if, if your experience in Mexico is anything like mine, the 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 availabilities of whiskeys are a yeah. little bit limited. They yeah. Are, yeah. Yep. understandable there's a lot more tequila than mezcals but exactly yep. yeah um is that a probably four or five star resort i don't know what they would qualify it as and the best whiskey they had was um kentucky gentleman so uh, mm -hmm. i i got into cognac actually yeah that's that yeah <laughs> it, it kind of forces list. you to do that if you yeah. want. <laughs> honestly a lot of i i think it really is kind of amazing some of the lower i believe that and i'm going to say this i don't know if this is true i'm just saying it out loud another so another theory but i do believe that lower end cognacs are better than lower end whiskeys i i just i think that i would agree a, with that um uh, i think it's maybe the limited nature of where they're made and kind of the age of some of the uh distilleries being a vineyard adjacent to some of the best wineries in the world um but but even some cheaper cheaper cognacs are pretty nice pretty pretty tasty <laughs> No, I would agree with that. Uh, and, and the only reason I'm uh, uh, shouting out to Cognac is because it's a sneak peek into our old saints. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I just took a sip of that actually. And uh, the my first thought is just that is quite nice. I and I'm also I like the proof, which I know Patrick, you're more of a 85 to 95. Uh, Megan, I know you've been asking for a cast strength for four or five years now. Mm -hmm. Oh, at least, mm -hmm. yeah. At least, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think. I think what spoiled me to it was that, you know, Strani or Patrick worked at Stranahan's for you know three years mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he would bring me stuff home off of the bottling line, like that was emptied out of hoses and, mm -hmm. and it's cast strength and mm -hmm. it's like, okay, before they proofed it down. And it was like, right. yeah, this is, this is what I want. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, even origin story, the red breast that we had yeah. in 2011 was, was cast, red cast strength, cast strength yeah. right? It was right. like, damn it. Yep. That's, yeah. that's exactly it. Yep. Yeah. And, and we're not talking like barn burners. We're not talking the Coy Hill Jack Daniels. It was 150 yep. or whatever, but yep. you know, yeah. this is, this is 116.7 proof. Uh, very approachable. I mean, for me, that would be a great everyday sipper. Like every days are like somewhere between a logic Creek battle proof and 
Jack Daniels power proof. So, um, but I, but Patrick, you said something that, that does that I've said before on the podcast and it's worth repeating here that, uh, there's something about American whiskeys to me and by, by American, I mean, specifically like bourbon and rye, Mm -hmm. especially corn-based distillates where the lower proof, it doesn't translate as well. Whereas I, I just constantly demand a higher proof with those whiskeys and rye, maybe a little less so, but bourbon, especially mm-hmm. and corn base, especially you just need a higher proof to, to feel like there's a mouthfeel to it. It's not too thin, etc. cetera. Um, with malt and with barley, I should say more generally, given our context in which we're talking now, yeah. mm-hmm. um, barley just gives more in a base. So you can have something that is at 92 proof mm-hmm. uh, and I found them all enjoyable at 92 proof it didn't feel thin or um like there it was begging for more alcohol in it or more age or something in there uh which is again it's worth noting is it something that as you're bringing an irish style of whiskey into the american sphere and experimenting with american styles and non-american styles it's worth noting that what you're creating can be enjoyed by a profound like me at yeah. 92 proof Thank you. That being I, said, I would yeah. love to try it at Cast Strength too. <laughs> don't worry, don't time. worry, it's coming. I'm gonna I didn't make it even, happen. I've even mentioned that in the uh, ways that we get to explore uh, whiskey. You know, a single right. sure, yeah. well, that'll be another level that um, cast strength and different proofing. And you mm-hmm. know, it's something um, uh, inter rugby again in 2015. Megan and I went to the Rugby World Cup, and it was in um, England and Wales. And so naturally we went to Scotland first. And so <laughs> we um, did a whole distillery tour up, up there. And one of the things that they always, always do on all of their tastings, which is not necessarily the case on every bourbon tasting, is that they really encourage water addition. Even 80 proof whiskeys, they encourage water addition because mm-hmm. it is wild what a few drops of whiskey do. Why water? Uh, what did I say? Whiskey. Few <laughs> drops of whiskey, few drops of water <laughs> due to whiskey to open it up and change the flavors, specifically in single malt whiskeys. And with ours being all barley based, right? I mean, even though half of our mash bill, 50 50 malted, unmalted barley, um, it, it's the same. It's a can. It's like uh, apples being cooked in a pan and apples being picked off a tree. Very different flavor profiles. There's caramelization there, right? Malt versus raw barley yield different flavors, Um, but they're natural companions uh, being of one another, obviously. And so adding a little bit of water and proofing whiskey down as barley-based whiskey, I think there is still a lot of offering that and a lot of change that can happen that can um, meld into the flavor profile of, of the water that you're using. Um, the addition of ice is not fully discouraged, although we would always say use a big cube so you get a slower dilution. Um, but I do believe, uh, and I'm only saying this because you said it, that <laughs> barley does have a very unique depth um, with lower proof than than you get from other grain-based distillates and it really speaks to the grain the nature of the grain i think corn is a much more linear flavor profile than barley is um and 
and it's and it's just a, a very interesting thing. And I'm glad you kind of brought that up because I we encourage people too on our tastings. You sit down and it's like add a couple drops of water and new notes come up. Right? There's too much of a good thing. You can definitely overwater, um, but but it is fun to sit and experience what you think are trams you're used to or very familiar with on the single malt, single pot still side, adding a little bit of water can really give you a very different experience. And I'm just thinking too, I also want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is that the unmalted barley presents challenges Mm -hmm. in the process. And I I don't think that's ever been explored on this podcast before. So I want to get back to that as well. Um, uh, There was one part that I was just thinking, oh, so it was the that green apple note. Um, that's the uh, acetaldehyde mm-hmm. note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So normally on a distillation run, I would think of that as being one of the earliest indicators, just smell wise, that the heads are done and you're getting to stuff that's frankly safe to drink. Yes. <laughs> um, so, but when I say that, my immediate thought was, well, does that apply for does that apply across grain distillations? Like, does it apply as much for a bourbon mash bill, let's say as a rye mash bill, as a barley mash bill, or does that compound present in a different place during your runs? It's and a, I guess the, the yeah. second question to that is, is basically thinking about like, does the strength, does the fact that you have such a strong green apple note mean that you're making an earlier heads cut rather than a later one, or is it, a separate timing? Yes, it's it's a great question. And I'm glad that both of those questions are similar enough because I'm really bad at two-part questions because <laughs> I usually forget the second question. Well, by I have the a bad time habit I've of doing those, so. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, so let me, let me describe this as best as possible. We actually make a very deep heads cut. We let a lot of heads go because... Um, it goes back a little bit to unmalted barley. There's some interesting notes. There's a bit of um, what might be called like an expo markery um, note that comes off, right? Is it you kind of get the acetone coming off danger, right? That means methanol is also coming off at the same time. Um, why when your friendly moonshiners um, did not make any cuts at all and just threw flavoring into uh, liquor to cover it up why people would go blind. Methanol damages your optic nerve. Um, we have no flavoring in our whiskey at all. And so that would be a very terrible flavor uh, coming in. So not only is it a safety thing, but it's a literally a flavor profile issue you want to get that acetone that smells and tastes like nail polish remover right behind that you can get a very expo markery scent on on the whiskey um and every grain is really going to give you very different sensory notes at the top of the run, except for that acetone smell. That acetone, you're really going to get a lot of that acetone in any grain profile. However, um, the esterification mm-hmm. of our distillate in the barrel also yields a green apple note. So it okay. is not purely a grain-based note that you might get more 
as a grain based note coming directly from corn that's going to be a little bit more of a grain only note possibly and i'd love to hear um, some of our bourbon friends chime in especially on the cut point side uh, um, because green apple can also be uh, a killer for brewers so we make our philosophy one of them is that we really control our fermentations to make the best possible fermentation we can. We boil our wort with no barley in it. Um, there are a lot of polyphenols in barley that can lead to high astringency. It's why in both the Irish whiskey technical file and in the Scotch malt, um, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the, the name of their file just slipped, but their regulatory body, mm -hmm. uh, barley, distillation specifically has to be done off grain unlike the american mm. tradition where rye and corn and wheat and barley all go in and they're distilled in column stills that is not a legal option in ireland and scotland for both single malt whiskeys or single pot still you have to separate that raw barley polyphenols that are then cooked in the still will give you an astringent distillate. Um, and for brewers specifically, I don't, I don't want to end that statement there necessarily. It, it's really important. We are really, I believe in that 100% because distilling barley, especially in a pot still column still, you get a little bit more forgiveness, right? Cause it's going to strip out a lot more flavors right, right. then you're going to be able to remove in a pot still um thus this kind of harmony of these rules we off-grain distill so it's distilled like a beer would be we boil our wort so we clean the wort of any microbes that might have gotten into this sweet sugary barley heaven that is uh up for grabs for any small microbe to start to consume we use only a liquid yeast culture that's pitched in, into a closed stainless steel fermenter. Um, and that is cleaned and sanitized before that wort goes in and before that liquid yeast culture is pitched. So very much like all of the beers you would drink are made. Mm -hmm. um, that then going into that pot still, you haven't brought forth any of these other negative flavors that barley might bring from an astringency standpoint. Um, and, and that's a really, the, the stills to us and to me are garbage in, garbage out apparatuses, like a calculator. You put something negative into that still, all it's doing is concentrating those flavors down. And, and so we really pay attention to our uh, fermentations saying all of this is it means that we don't carry forth a ton of acetaldehyde in our fermentations because for beer brewers that's a that's not a positive flavor um usually what happens is in a, a too much acetaldehyde kind of tastes like notebook paper or cardboardy notes mm -hmm. that you get it doesn't have in beer the same flavor profile that it does as an ester, which is green apple. So a lot of what's happening 
on our side where you're getting that green apple is yes, it's it's obviously present. It's higher in barley just naturally to your point than than say rye especially. Um, however, it's it's a lot of that oxidation and marrying with the oak compounds that enhances that that kind of makes it pop. Um, and specifically, I believe uh, you get this also, I think in green spot, a little bit of that apple note as well there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And, uh, I love going into the science stuff. I, <laughs> I love it. You I said, did. I mean, you were talking barrel compounds. I'm a chemist. So you, you hit the barrel compounds earlier mm-hmm. and it's, it's really important. I think one of the things that we love about whiskey as scientists is, it's very high in the amount of science you can use to both understand and enhance the product, but it's equally an artist's palette uh, that there is so much culinary exploration in whiskey um, that science doesn't really, you know, it's not been figured out. It's not been just prescribed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you can tell that by walking into any liquor store and, and seeing shelves full of thousands of, of bottles of whiskeys and wines and beers. Um, so it's really, it's really fun to have that balance. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this podcast can sometimes go very nerdy and nerdy in the best way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've had Dr. Pat Heist on to talk about like really in depth on yeast, Alan Bishop talking about his experiments. One of my favorite bourbons. Yeah. Yeah. Very big into the belief that yeast does make a difference. Mm -hmm. Well, and and it, I I was gonna say it wouldn't be an episode with a uh, producer if I didn't ask what kind of yeast you're using. Absolutely, we're um, uh, currently, uh, and again coming into Aries, you'll get this experience with different profiles. Um, but we spent a lot of time at the at the house figuring this out, right? As rudimentary rudimentally as we could, um, you know, home brewers have been experiencing. Um, such a boom and the quality of product that's available at that scale that we were huge benefactors of, of that, especially on the yeast side, really getting to try different types of strains of yeast. Uh, and we settled on the Irish ale yeast. Um, it was between a, a California ale yeast and an Irish ale yeast, which was the original yeast culture from the Guinness Brewery. They were the first ones to have pioneered that. That's now commercially available as an Irish ale strain. And so we... Um, and it's another local company that harvests that for us. Yeah. So we get uh, that from Inland Island. They have a house strain um, that we keep and and make all of our whiskey out of. Excellent. And... I think you answered this, the reasoning for this next question earlier too, but just to confirm. So I know you use um, Moravian barley as well. Mm-hmm. Um, was that strictly because, you know, the Coors family brought that over and that's what's available? Or do you also do trials with the barley type to use as well? So the answer is yes to both, um, except that that's the most commercially and widely available yeast strain. Um, we use all two, it's a two row, um, a lot of distillers, um, in Europe will use a six row, uh, type of barley. They're just different species that have different, 
efficiencies and kind of makeup of starch protein ratios. Um, but most beers, most brewers use that two row uh, barley. Now it could be any number of strains in the two row that are more water tolerant or more um, dry weather tolerant, cold heat, right? They all have nuanced makeups there. Um, uh, we use the barley that grows kind of best here in, in Colorado. And that style of two row kind of goes back to our belief in brewing and fermentation yielding really great distillate. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's something that is less efficient everything we do is less efficient. Um, we, we use that two row barley because it has body and has some real depth to it. Um, so we use that for both the malting side and the raw side. Uh, and so that, uh, barley strain, right. We, we're less efficient because we use raw barley. You never get as much starch conversion. And we're talking about the complexity you were going to ask about that. It's really that, in the mash tun versus the malting floor, you're never gonna get as much efficiency, as much sugar out of raw barley than you are out of malted barley. The malting process is really kind of that natural conversion of starch into sugar. Um, the cooking process yields a very similar result, but not nearly as efficient. So we lose efficiency there. Are we use liquid yeast cultures. So those take seven days instead of three to four days. Um, we triple distill in pot stills. So we fill a still up. We run that still out over eight hours. It goes into catch tanks. We then fill the next still up the next day. And we do that three times instead of just double distilling, right? Mm -hmm. The end result of the product is the beauty of single pot still whiskey is in the inefficiency. It's in the sacrifice of time um, that really makes something special. It's not even necessarily something that could be done with a corn base. Doing that longer doesn't make a better whiskey, but doing this process, sacrificing these efficiencies really does make a better end product uh, on, on single pot still. Which is a full circle from one of your original questions of why is no, why are nobody, why is nobody doing this? And it's, it's because it's not that efficient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of the answers. Mm -hmm. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Pocono Whiskey. Sitting just south of Auckland on the North Island of New Zealand, Pocono is one of the Pacific Rim's newest distilleries. Founded by whiskey industry veteran Matt Johns, Pocono set out to create a uniquely New Zealand single malt whiskey, one that would bring the lush, subtropical terroir into the world's most recognizable category of malt spirit. I've been able to try their origin and their discovery series, as well as a single barrel double matured in ex-bourbon, and each were truly fantastic. And in case you're wondering whether I really do get to try these things that I talk about or whether I even like them, I'm here to tell you yes to both. If I don't like it, I don't have to talk about it. And I can't stop talking about Pocono to anyone who will listen. As of March 2023, Pocono is just starting to come out into the U.S. market with a rapidly growing footprint. I sometimes say that there are distilleries to watch. This is one to watch while sipping their already world-class single malts. 
check out my episode with Matt and Pocono in late March, and order your bottle of Pocono New Zealand Single Malt today. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. So uh, the next question is really about the climatological aspect of this. Obviously, you're trying to do something that is an Irish style, following these regulations as close as possible. But at the end of the day, you're not in Ireland. You're, and you're not, and to kind of go further than that, you're also not in an environment that is an Irish environment. Um, so in blending, if you will, the Gaelic tradition with American whiskey and the realities of where you are, no doubt one of those biggest differences is simply the climate and uh, some of the numbers that'll, you know, include in the tasting notes, but just to throw them out here, you know, you're dealing with something like a seven to 11% angel share a year, mm-hmm. which can be good and bad. You, know, you get a higher rate of esterification, but also higher rate of oxidization, higher rate of loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, you've said, you know, at, at Stranahan's where you worked previously, they were able to do a 10 year old whiskey because they temperature controlled it. Mm-hmm. You're not doing that. So by the end of six years is, almost nothing left in the barrel if you were to do that. So I guess the question then is when you, when you were starting the distillery and had this idea that you wanted to recreate the style through to today, how, if at all, did you adjust your thinking about producing that single malt, that single pot still whiskey, excuse me, when faced with a dramatically different climate in which you were creating it? I think a few different ways. Do you? Well, I think it was, I think it was all a, a test. I think mm-hmm. it, again, it goes back to the naivety of, of us not really dumb, real dumb, <laughs> not, <laughs> not knowing what would happen. You know, I mean, we, I told you we used quarter casks uh, when we first started in that first year, mm-hmm. barrel number two, we left barrel number one quarter cask alone, but barrel number two, we were tasting out of it like once a week. And when we finally mm-hmm. went to go harvest it and it was all gone, either from angel share or the Miller share. I don't know which was <laughs> higher, but, um, you know, it was just, it was an experiment and, uh, I think we're, we're still learning. Uh, I don't know yeah, I, a hundred percent. And I will, anyone listening that's ever thinking about, um, opening a distillery, never taste a barrel once a week. <laughs> it, it will, it's such a mind trip because it changes so much you're like, oh, good. Oh, I'm loving this direction. Oh, this is fantastic. And you come back the next week and it's like, oh no, why is it so bitter? Right. I mean, there's like tannin influx. There's so much going on. Uh, uh, people, I just don't think, uh, understand enough to really appreciate how crazy a barrel and a little ecosystem is the, uh, liquor pulling oak compound into it oxygen and nitrogen converting tannins and lignins um, and and acid profiles into ester profiles. So many things are happening in a barrel over its lifespan that it's really not a good idea to be tasting these things uh, day in, day out. However, um, you know, we it's kind of a stood on the shoulders of giants. We did know that 
um, with the growth of the Colorado distilling community here at altitude that the esterification is much higher because the evaporation, that angel share is much higher. So as the angel share is taking liquid out of the barrel, it's bringing in this oxygen and nitrogen that really are an important part of the flavor development um, that happens at a much quicker rate. You're getting much more air into the barrel to act as kind of a catalyst for reaction than you would if you're only losing two to four percent a year us losing seven to eleven percent a year it's a very different um kind of reaction time reaction chamber if you think of a barrel like that uh the altitude presents itself in a way that is friendly, especially in the earlier years. I, I really do believe that. But to your point as well, that over time, uh, you lose enough that you can empty a barrel just purely on angel share, working up to a 10-year release. Um, so there's ways to climate control, both artificially through HVAC systems, or um, old dunnage style warehouses like our friends at Leopold Brothers up the road use with earthen floors that act like greenhouses where the humidity or water in the earth actually create kind of a, a, a small, less dramatic greenhouse effect that maintains water inside of the aging uh, facility. And so there's a lot of different ways to, to change that, but, you know, it goes into what we love to say as terroir, like the, uh, French vines that made it their way to California got established and, and make some amazing, extraordinary, beautiful wines that are very identifiable, uh, as a Cabernet say, um, but, but aged uh, or grown and, and created in California created a totally different wine type, right? We're doing that We very similarly here. We think about things like wine uh, a lot. I mean, we think about ourselves like wineries think about themselves as like having a terroir, having a barley that's local to us, a water, an aging climate that's very different than, than Ireland and creating similar profiles, similar uh, products at the end of the day, but with very different notes and nuances and intrigue based purely on the environmental aspect. I mean, uh, to ask the obvious question, did you consider doing temperature control? Yeah, and and I think likely um, that that'll be something that we will really think about what is best. I I think I would prefer that dunnage style, um, mm -hmm. although it is less efficient because you can build a very big warehouse that's temperature controlled. Um, dunnage style, you're usually only stacking that like three or four barrels high. Um, so there's some efficiency loss there, right? You're working with dirt floors instead of something you can drive a forklift all over, you know, I mean, so, so there's definitely some logistics there. Um, and, and I don't know that we've answered it, but I, I would say that if Patrick had his way always as an artisan, I would prefer, uh, to have both a purely, uh, warehouse based, non-climate controlled facility and then uh for longer term aging a dunnage style that makes sense to do to uh separate i mean 
mm-hmm. I think of conversation recently with uh, Lockley Distillery mm-hmm. and, uh, and John Campbell. And he said, you know, we need to, we've got the whiskey coming out of three years old. And I think they've got some pretty th- good three-year-old whiskey, especially for something that's in, you know, in Scotland and yeah, ages so- slower. Yep. But they're also planning for the 10, 25, 10, yep. 20, 25 year whiskeys. And yeah, you got to put that underground. That's pretty much the only way mm-hmm. <laughs> underground or like is it climate controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a subset of that, and this is a question that I am probably most excited to ask is about this transatlantic project that you're doing with Boan Distillery. And uh, I'm excited for two reasons. One, because I haven't spoken to Boan yet, but I have spoken to um, Schlieve League down the, down the road from Boan. And uh, that'll feature in this, the uh, next question. But tell us a little about the uh, that transatlantic projects. You know, what is it? How did it come to be? And what's the purpose? Yeah, so our friend Matt Healy um, uh, was working at, at Boan at the time. And we did uh, his podcast. He actually, he flew to Denver to um, meet with us. And we hung out for many hours. And he came back to us a couple months later and was like, hey, I have this idea. And uh, it is sort of a, uh, a proof of uh, what a climate situation does to whiskey. Um, so again, like, like you mentioned, um, there are different, we live in different climates and we're making a same, the same style of whiskey. And so we were like, well, what would it be like if we compared the two? So we distilled the exact same mash bill on the exact same day, bottled or barreled it on the exact same day. Um, and we decided to lay it down for five years. Uh, and so therefore we had to lay down an extra bottle our extra barrel of whiskey because of that uh, angel share that we have here. And so what we really want to do is, is uh, we'll send that at the end of five years, we will send them half of our whiskey. They'll send us half of that whiskey that they aged there. Um, and then we'll release them in side-by-side uh, 375s. Uh, so you can actually taste the difference in climate aging of our whiskeys and this, this exact same mash bill, you know, exact same aging. Uh, and um, we're really looking forward to that. We're almost almost two years in so another three years and a couple months we'll be able to taste that difference um but we're and we also really want to write a scientific paper about it we're both scientists and i have one published paper i never thought i would have another published paper again and i am super excited about the potential to have another published paper out yeah i i think it's it kind of leads to the the previous question you asked and like it there we can talk all day about how important climate is and different barleys are and what colorado water does and what irish water does and uh and at the end of the day we're all just talking about it and boan's idea was to be about it and i think it's brilliant i'm honored um I know Megan and I are both honored as everyone at the distillery that that idea saw fruit and and there are actually barrels in warehouses uh, uh, 3000 miles apart um, in totally different, you know, we're a high alpine desert here is really our classification on the front range. Um, and just how different that is than the humid seaside kind of vision of, of Ireland. I, right now, our feet at the distillery 
are the height of the um, tallest mountain in Ireland uh, and Crow Patrick. So you, you have this like really interesting uh, notion out there that I think we all know and we all talk about that. Uh, so we're really excited to to see what that looks like um, in five to seven years um, when it's appropriate, when the whiskey is telling us that this is kind of the showcase period. So we're excited. We're uh, hopefully going to get over there uh, to visit the, them specifically here in, in the next six months. And so uh, they don't know that yet. So, hey, if you're <laughs> listening, uh, just we're putting the plans together to come over and say hi, uh, but really exciting. They've been wonderful to work with. And, and then I think that was a really beautiful project. Definitely. When you see them, give them a heads up. Um, well, I mean, let them know that uh, you guys will be on the podcast. It's coming out on the 15th. And um, I want to talk to them at some point too. So yep. yes, good luck for if you don't mind. Yep, definitely. And uh, I do want to also mention this is a very special mash bill. It's been described as like the the magic mash bill or something like the perfect mash bill. I forgot the the that was used, but the Bowen uh, one, bill. yeah. It, it was they won in the World Whiskey Awards that year that we uh, did this collaboration. They won World's Best New Make. So we use that mash bill um, that they created to to um, have that have this style of whiskey be uh, or, or that mash bill be part of the uh, showcase of this. Right, and that's the forty uh, percent malted barley, fifty five percent unmalted, three point seventy five percent oats, and one point twenty five percent rye. So very specific measurements. And just to be absolutely sure, because I always forget to ask this. Um, those are percentages based on weight, not volume, correct? Uh, correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. Almost everything is done by weight. Um, just since you asked, we even do all of our proofing by weight. Um, uh, we obviously measure alcohol by volume, but when we cut things down, we cut it down by pounds of water um, because it's much more accurate to do it on a scale than it is to do it by X number of gallons. That makes that makes that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. um, do you do a slow proofing or fast proofing process? We do. We do a slow proofing. We have found that there's a balance between economics of time and uh, quality of whiskey. Where right at about that two weeks uh, is where we start to see diminishing returns for our whiskey based on the amount of time that we have to have it out of barrels, in tanks, before it's going into bottles. So we never really go above two weeks. We definitely experimented past that, but that was the sweet spot in time economy and uh, product quality. Gosh, I, I, yeah, I'm blanking right now on which brand I was talking to. Uh, it's a while ago now, but they were talking, they introduced the sponification to me. Um, it was either it was Santa Fe Spirits. That's who it was. Um, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Colin. Yeah. yeah. Colin, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. So yep. introducing sponification and how I mean they do ridiculously slow proof downs there. Um, but it's especially don't uh, always ask. So. Yeah, Clonic Kilty in Ireland also does, I think they're at least a month uh cut down. Mm -hmm. And I you're exactly right. I mean, that's the term is that soaping that you can get between um polar opposites of uh or, or mm -hmm. different polarity when you're adding water into ethanol you can get a soaping that can change the flavor now these are like i would say layman's terms you're not creating any kind of soap actually right it's just mm -hmm. that 
um, bubbles. You have to be very careful if you're doing a gin um, because of the oils that are extracted from say the juniper or citrus mm -hmm. peels that you might be using. Since there's actual oil and water in uh, the mix there, you can really get uh, uh, some, some soaping to the point where it clouds the products. It actually makes right. it more opaque and less clear so it's definitely a thing uh again that's this is where science meets art and a lot of uh, again i kind of mentioned our uh, the economy of time versus the product quality uh, that we made as a distillery was about two weeks and that's that was our balance uh, now Again, we're triple distilled with malted and unmalted barley. Everybody's going to be a little bit different about where that sweet spot is for them. Um, but we're we're definitely believers based on the science, but at the end of the day, based on the flavor profile. And now I just made a note to uh, look up to see the differences between luching and flocculation because I have not looked that up and now I have to. Yeah, and, so, and luching is really what you're going to get where it starts to become opaque. Uh, flocculation right. is more based on precipitation, where things are falling out of solution instead mm -hmm. of clouding because of bonding. In solution. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. They're kind of like clumping. I vision exactly. kind of clumping together as opposed to, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. As, a, as, as opposed a, to the absinthe kind of thing that you exactly. had ordered absinthe. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, all right. So the, so I have a special question for the end, which I uh, indicated off air. But the other, um, the last question that I wanted to ask uh, definitely tonight, and I think there's a lot more that we could definitely go into with, uh, again, more with the products and, and especially once that experimental starts coming out and changes in the technical file. But um, something you mentioned early on was that you were able to kind of grab onto this wave of renewed interest, renewed production in Irish whiskey in general, and especially the single pot still style. And uh, we see that across Ireland in the fact that, you know, uh, two decades ago, we had three distilleries there. Mm -hmm. Now we're including ones that are coming online and ones that are online. We're now past 50. Yeah. Wild. It's wild. wild. It, it's yeah. incredible. And a lot of those are also really reviving local heritage styles that uh, were, that went by the wayside during consolidation. And one of the styles that went out earliest, arguably as early as the 1850s, was peated Irish whiskeys. And uh, we spoke a little bit about this um, on the podcast with uh, Schlieve League a couple of episodes ago, where they're uh, doing the peated with the silkies. And then they're also going to be peated when they are uh, with their own distillate, uh, whenever that's ready. Another, and actually, as this episode comes out on the 15th, the following episode, following the Irish uh, thing for the March, will be with Waterford Distillery. Oh, wonderful. Gosh, I love Waterford. Um, Speaking yeah. of terroir, they'll give exactly. you every, all you need to know about terroir. Oh, uh, believe me, there we did, like I said, we recorded one episode. There's probably three more just in the scientific <laughs> aspect of that that we got to get yep, to. Yep, good, um, good. And uh, so, obviously, one of the products that you put out that I got to taste was your peated cask. Mm -hmm. And I know you use the peated, um, I'm assuming it's ex-Lafroig. Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. it, it's like trying to find someone who has used a different, like not Lafroig is very difficult because it's no one else 
has those casks, but uh, or the Lafroy uh casks are everywhere. So, um, you talked, Patrick, you talked about it a little bit with uh, with Drew with whiskey lore on this, but I don't think this specific question was asked. So, while we're seeing more peated Irish whiskey being made, particularly from the far north, Donegal, yep. that area, um, it's not necessarily ubiquitous across the new Irish distilleries. Um, and certainly aside from, you know, Connemara from the heritage Irish distilleries either. So what was kind of your thinking and your incentive to add Pete to the, to the lineup? And, um, you know, was it just part of that trend? Was it something you liked in your whiskeys or how did that come about? Yes. Uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> I think like many things here, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping it speaks to just our fantastic palette that, that we have present at the distillery is that we make a lot of things that we like and, and Pete being one of those things that I've always loved. You know, I mentioned, um, Megan and I's taste profile preference has always been in Irish and Scottish whiskeys, both, both blends and um, single malt, single pot still whiskeys. Um, but me in particular, more than, more than Megan, uh, has always loved peat. I've always loved pickles and olives and briny, sea salty flavor profiles. I love the smell of iodine. I, I, there's just a lot of those things that really speak to my palate enjoyment. And I find so many of those flavors present, um, specifically in Scottish styles of, of whiskey that I'm uh, a fan of. Bunahaven um, is one of those. Of course, I love Laphroaig and Lagavulin. I mean, that the entire island um, uh, of Isla is just, uh, I think, a very special place that that has carried that terroir forward again, uh, not to make that a buzzword, but I do think it's very important, especially when you're talking about uh, specific places that capitalize on natural resources um, that are of the locality. Um, and looking at these and thinking Ireland and Scotland, both as, as really true Celtic kin, Pete was the fuel of the everyday experience. It's what you cooked your food on. It's what you heated your homes with. The air just always smelled like peat, right? I mean, for hundreds of years, that was just what the fuel was. Um, not dissimilarly to um, coal being used in London and you see the old London fog and, and some of these uh, um, uh, smells that must've just been omnipresent uh, mm -hmm. in whiskey especially with the kilning of the barley for these barley-based whiskeys, both in Ireland and Scotland, that was the heat source. That was the mechanism by which barley was, um, the germination process was ceased to create this malting, this malted barley that then was just permeated with this peat smoke. And so most Irish whiskey back way back when, I won't even throw dates at you. I'll let some uh, some of the Irish historians to really give you um, good windows on what life was like, especially with regards to peat specifically in whiskey, um, is 
that it was present in everything. And it was part of just the flavor of everyday life. And it's a flavor that I um, particularly love. And I didn't want to put peated malt into my copper because I didn't want everything after to taste like peated malt. Now, if it's a win, it's a win, right? But it's kind of like the same reason we have a different still for gin because we don't want to be putting juniper berries in what is going to be our our whiskey product. So you can't clean it enough. It's, it's, it's just it's always going to be very there. difficult, right? It's just, it's just yeah. not something we wanted to necessarily gamble with. And so this was in 2018 and 2019. I'm not even sure if it was when we first did our first batches, I'm not even sure that it was popular at that point because there, I don't even know if there was another peated pot still out yet by the time we did that. I, I just, I don't know. There may very well have been one or two available in Ireland that I'm just unaware of. Um, but I loved that that was just part of the island's history that kind of had been forgotten a little bit because to be quite honest as well, they did such an amazing job of creating clean flavors of barley by air kilning instead of smoke kilning um, that really let the barley shine instead of the smoke shine um but i really did love that that idea that man lafroig such a heavily peated whiskey could really give some of that nuance and depth uh that pete gives to a whiskey and i think it turned out pretty great and we're finding that as those barrels get older and older the peat becomes less layered and more integrated into the flavor profile. Um, and, and I'm really excited about what that product line is going to do over the next three, four years. Yeah, I, I agree. It was a great um, expression that I think I, I got more out of it because I had tried the Schlieve League, this is the Midnight Silky beforehand. Yes. So it wasn't well, I have I, I have both of the Silky bottles in my, in my private mm-hmm office cabinet here <laughs> exactly uh so it, it was helpful but i think the fact that it's it's cask as opposed to kilning with the peat mm-hmm. helped is a little softer uh and no i i quite liked it. it it's not and it's enough in control if you will yes totally that mm-hmm. someone who's not necessarily a peat head yeah. will also get to enjoy it they'll get the chocolates and, and as you said the over time the phenols and the and the um, creosotes are going to break down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have a 10 year used cask repeated. It's probably going to be, as you said, pretty integrated as opposed yeah. to being this powerful flavor that's on top of the malt. Yes. Right on top of the barley, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, integrate better. We, so, call, it, we call it kind of like peat light or, or uh, gateway yeah. peat. Yeah. It, that would be a good way to put it. I mean, my gateway was Highland Park, and that's, a very different peat style than Isla. Mm-hmm. Um, but I needed that different peat style in order to appreciate, like now I love, I love Kalila. Yeah. Lafroig yes. is, I got to admit, Lafroig is a little too iodiney and, and tarry for me. Yep. But um, no, a Kalila, a, a um, Berkladi, Lagavulin, those are, those are kind of my, my peat styles if we're going to Isla. Um, so I, we are, I know we're already over time. And I appreciate all the time you've given. I wanted to give you one last question because of both the day we're recording, which happens to be uh, International Women's Day, but also in just the nature of how your distillery is run. So I'm going to give a little context and then just let 
let you finish off. I'll assume Megan, you'll finish us off on this one. So, uh, as I said, you know, tonight uh, I happen to be interviewing two distilleries that have very strong uh, women and female leadership. Earlier today was Vikra. That'll come out a little bit later, but this one with uh, Town New will come out next week. And I was totally by coincidence that these happen to be scheduled on International Women's Day. Didn't plan it, didn't think about it, but it happened. Um, in doing the research for uh, for Talnua, it was very clear that you're both very equal partners in the distillery and as both the face and the internal side of things. And sometimes you can have people who are equal, but it seems like one part, one person is the face and does all the interviews, does all the podcasts, but that's not really the case here. You, you, you seem like it's very equally distributed. Uh, and that's something to, to be noted. The other part of that is that on the Bourbon Road, Megan, you said that uh, the, every product released, especially the blends, go through at least one female staff member, whether that's you, uh, Amy, someone on staff. So between that aspect of it, just the fact that you're having women lead in, in the tasting and the final product, but also your position as president of the Colorado Distillers Guild. Um, I just wanted to kind of give you a few minutes to talk about uh, the female leadership that you've been able to grab, if you will, and and use and where that's going. Thank you so much for that. I, I really appreciate the, the platform to be able to um, speak a little bit about it. I, um, you know, Patrick and I both came from oil and gas and, and all of my leaders that I had in my 14 year career, always encouraged um, me to explore leadership. Uh, I have I have a white belt training, didn't get beyond that, but I, you know, lots of continuous improvement, like being a good leader, all of those um, sort of courses and, and young leadership programs, I was always into. And so when we set out to start a distillery, that is a core value of ours is creating uh, great leaders and, um, you know, we, I guess the, the next step in my, what would be the next step in my, if I were still in my career would definitely be to run for president of the Colorado Distillers Guild. Yeah. I would do that in oil and gas. I did it in, um, the distilling industry. And I've been very honored to be the president of the Colorado Distillers Guild for uh, like three and a half years now. Um, and I am, so amazed by all of the other women in the industry uh, and men, the equity in this, you know, that we find in, um, well, not only in our own business, mostly in our own business, but these uh, other women in the industry are just so inspiring. And I'm just honored to be a part of that. And within our own business, you know, like, like I said, we want to create every person to be a great leader and, um, a lot of that is the equity that we put into everyone. And that means that, you know, sometimes you, you have to admit women have better sensory uh, <laughs> systems than, mm -hmm. than men it's, sometimes. It's, and scientifically so, proven folks don't scientifically argue with it. Uh, so we absolutely, not only is it fun, but, but it's valued that we, uh, make sure that all of our team gets to taste something before it's released as a product. And uh, at the beginning, it was just me and Patrick 
And Maya, who's our general manager, and Amy, who unfortunately lives in Indiana, so she didn't get to try as much as we got to, um, but definitely all products pass through at least two and now three um, women-owned sensory. Uh. <laughs> I mean, palettes, so, it's so important, I think, to us because, you know, one of the things, uh, too, on the back of this, specifically from both of our perspective was that there is su there was such even five years ago a lack of female um participation in the whiskey sphere from a consumption standpoint even and it's like there have got to be oh. numbers and numbers of megan's out there that yeah. are just that haven't had the opportunity or experience and so megan's been wonderful at bringing that in and cultivating that at the distillery. Thank you. I, uh, but I also, you know, there's, there's so many people doing women doing podcasts and, and yeah. podcasts. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, now there's, we're doing, uh, we're a part of the bourbon women, uh, group membership and, and the college, there's a huge Colorado membership of bourbon women. Um, and so they, Peggy No Stevens is running a, a symposium in August for bourbon women across the nation. Um, and there's gonna be something like 400 women there and they are um, producers, they are uh, marketers, they are influencers, they are CEOs, they are every aspect in the distilling world has some woman running it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's super exciting and, and I, I know, you know, Women's History Month gives us that opportunity to highlight it, but we are, we are present, ever present all year long, mm -hmm. running these businesses and helping in creating these brands. And I am super proud to be a part of uh, that uh, group of people. And and one thing that I love that Megan's told me that, well, I can't remember what book it was that you read. It's like mm -hmm. women have been in this business since day one. There's never been a time when there have not been women in whiskey. So the precedence is long and it just, I feel like has never been showcased. And, and honestly, I think at times it's probably been been it's been kiboshed honestly. yes like, exactly so, yeah. so i'm really yeah. glad you brought that up because i really did want to talk about this book it's called girly dreams it's written by a female mm -hmm. in the industry um and it is hilarious and she goes all the way back to like dionysus and and like just the incredible history of women in the beverage world the alcohol world and then how <laughs> at some point in time men figured out that women were making money off of it and so they kind of kiboshed women being a part of it and took it over um but we're back <laughs> and we've always been back but it's just now that you know things are the history is coming out about how how prevalent women have been in this industry and i just absolutely love it and i'm inspired by it and all of the other women uh owners stillers brewers you know, directors marketing creative people Salespeople, we just hired on a new sales director, female. So we're just super stoked about where this industry is going for equity and um, and just creating safe spaces for for everyone. That's a perfect way to end it. So um, Patrick and Megan, hanging with me for just a minute after we finish recording. But in the meantime, again, this will be airing on March fifteenth. 
two days after this airs, the Old Saints Keep 2023 will be released. That is the American Single Pot Still Whiskey, finished in form Madeira and Cognac Barrels. I have had a sample. I will be wanting, hopefully, a bottle if I can grab one. And um, it is absolutely delicious. I encourage you to crash the site in order to get one. <laughs> that is what I would say. Um, in addition, there'll be, uh, like I said, tasting notes in the couple of days leading up to the episode and in the show notes for all the products that I was generous enough to receive, uh, or rather generous enough to be given. I don't know. My words are failing me. It's after 10 here. Um, so for all the samples I got to taste, uh, there will be information about the Colorado Distillers Guild, uh, about, um, I'll throw in a, a link to girly drinks as well, because now I want to yes. read that. Um, and yeah. And with that, I think we will wrap it up for the evening. So Patrick, Megan, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. And I look forward to talking more in the future. Thank you. Slancha. Slancha, David. Slancha. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedding That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club. So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.